Hi, I'm Reverend Carol Saunders, host of The Spiritual Forum. I'm here with a lot of interesting people who are consciously walking the spiritual path, experiencing and expressing the divine in unique ways and through unique lenses. Everyone here has wisdom to share and an interesting story to tell, all to inspire you on your spiritual path. Welcome to The Forum. Welcome, everyone, to The Spiritual Forum. I'm so glad you're here. Before I start, I want to send a shout out to Rhonda for donating to this podcast ministry. I really appreciate it, Rhonda. And anybody who can donate, small or large, to this, this is a nonprofit, and this is how we keep things going. So don't forget to check me out on my YouTube channel and also at thespiritualform.org and sign up for my newsletter on that website. And I just appreciate all you listeners who are on the spiritual path with me. We're all in here together, and this is a voice of hope, inspiration, and awakening. So let me introduce you to my guest. Celeste Edmonds is passionate about making a difference in the lives of youth and the child welfare system so that others may not have to go through the same experiences she had. Today, she's the executive director of Christmas Box International, which has defended more than 155,000 children over 28 years. In her recently released book, Garbage Bag Girl, Celeste tells her story of being in the child welfare system from the age of seven, where she experienced an ongoing cycle of police calls, fighting, and physical, sexual, and mental abuse. Ultimately, though, hers is a story of hope and inspiration, which I will let her share with us. Welcome, Celeste. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's really, really wonderful to have you. Before I push the record button, I shared that I really appreciate your book. I, I just thought it was a page turner, and I didn't expect that at all. So anybody who picks up your book, they should count on you know, s- sitting with it for a few hours because that's how it's going to go. It was just really a great book. Oh, thank you. Thank you for saying that. And I do tell people often that it's kind of one of those stories that if you're going to start it, You want to have enough time to probably finish it because the beginning is graphic. It's very real, my memoir of of being raised in child welfare, but it does have the hope at the end. You do get to that place, but in order to get to that place, I wanted readers to understand what the journey was to get there. And in the book, I, I, I didn't know how to address the spiritual stuff. So I actually am glad we'll get into that because it's, it's a bigger topic and it would have required a, a lot more reading, but, you know, stay tuned. That may be in the next one. <laughs> yes, I know there's a lot of spiritual stuff in your story, and I'm really thrilled yeah. that you want to get into that. So can you just share succinctly what your message is? Because I think it is really clear. You've got a clear message for people and for children in particular. Yes, so children that are in the foster care or child welfare system in any capacity, I really want them to feel and to know that we hear them and we see them and they matter and their voices matter. For people that are helping to take care of children in the child welfare system, I I also want them to know that they're heard and seen and they matter. But I think more importantly, what happens is being in the nonprofit sector now, I I understand how complicated that system is. I I get that how challenging it is. It's very underfunded, very overstaffed. I cannot even imagine being a social worker myself and making those very difficult decisions on whether, you know, a child or children are going to stay home or not. 
So I have a lot of empathy towards that. But I think when we're also caught up in a system, it's very easy to start thinking about the numbers and the statistics and the and the placements and the disruptions and all the, you know, the child welfare terms that we use. And I want to remind everybody to remember that we're talking about children. We're talking about young adults and about half a million of them in the United States that do not feel like they're being heard, that do not feel like they're seen, that do feel like the title of my book, A Garbage Bag Girl or Boy. And we need to pause sometimes when, you know, oftentimes when we're in those situations and just remember that there are children that still want to be heard. They want everything that, that every other child wants. And I, I just don't think that we can remind people of that enough. Yeah, well, as a unity minister, my fundamental belief is that there's a divine spark within every person. And I mean, even even those difficult people that you encountered in your life, they just can't see it. They've just lost it. It's just been covered up by layers and layers. And so really what we can do is behold that divine, that that spark of life, that the, the joy, the, the, the love that's in every person. And children especially do need to know that. And my heart really goes out to everybody who's in this system. I, I'd love for you to tell some of your story without telling the whole story, because I know that's your book. But I remember so many times in your story, you were told over and over again that, wow, you were lucky to be adopted. And that turned out not to be so lucky. It was your life path. It was a difficult life path. But it wasn't necessarily this, oh, what a lucky girl. She got adopted. And I think that's the way people from the outside can look at the system. And so perhaps you can share a little bit of your story and, and how that unfolded. Yeah, and especially to just to lean into what you said a little bit, especially you're considered lucky if you know, you're over the age of four and your chances of being adopted drop 50% because most people, understandably so, want to adopt an infant. You, you kind of know in those situations pretty quickly that you might be, you might be lost in the system. Kids talk about that pretty openly when they're in it. And so for me, the journey of being raised uh, initially by addicted parents, that wasn't, that for me wasn't even the most difficult situation because one, I didn't know any better. And two, there still was love and love in their own way. My father, I mean, I considered myself a daddy's girl when he was healthy and not using, he was a fantastic dad. And I was always told that I was loved and valued and that I, I would make, you know, a great life for myself more than, more than even he had. And so there was that component that I definitely felt I had very, very early on. And then when, by the age of seven, when really this, the state intervened and I had become mom by that time, and I was taking care of my little sister, I was making some very tough choices that being mom at age seven, you know, I couldn't really wrap my head around what was the right thing to do. And I put myself in, in some very tough situations, as you read, thinking mm -hmm. that they were certainly the best decision because I wanted to protect them from happening to my sister. So 
sexual, physical, whatever abuse that that was going to be, almost seemed like a no-brainer for me at that age. I, I mean, I, her or me, I'm not really going to question, right, who that should be. And so, because I was mom, I felt like I was mom and I was doing what my mom wasn't doing at the time. So when we went into the child welfare system, it really sent us down this path of now exposure to drug abuse centers and other family members and foster parents and and just this world of chaos moving between states. And eventually, because it was determined we would be adopted and we wouldn't be adopted together, they felt they couldn't find a home to take all three children. My brother and sister were put into a home and I was put into a different home. And that was the first real true sense of loss for me to lose siblings, which you know, now through therapy, I realized felt like the loss of a child for me really, really started setting me down that, that path of feeling spiraled and unsure. And from, I will say from, from the spirituality standpoint, the only thing I, I could hang on to during those moments was that there was a fundamental belief I had that there was still something bigger than myself. And there was still a plan. I didn't know what the plan was, but there was a plan out there. And it was vague because I was little, but it was there. And I had during all the experiences you will read about in the book, the very tough, tough experiences to read, I had a very strong presence during that time of something telling me I would make it. I would live. I for sure would not die. And it was very clear and it helped me to stay focused during chaos. And even though I didn't fully understand it at the time, I could embrace it. So I continued on, you know, in my, in my journey of figuring out whatever it was going to look like. And I was adopted at the age of nine by a very abusive home. The mother was clinically psychotic. She mentally could not function. She couldn't have any more children. So I was adopted as a Christmas present for my sister. And that was just a very Cinderella tell is kind of the best way for me to describe it. It was just bizarre and odd that I I got to go into this home after, yes, being told you're so lucky, you should just get what you get and take what you get and be grateful. So I did. And I remember thinking, well, I guess it's not so bad to be a Christmas present for a sister. I felt like I was a pretty good big sister before. So I jumped in wholeheartedly. I really, you know, am generally very optimistic. And I felt like, okay, let's do this. So we continue in, into that path. And it was just this psychological mind games all the time of, you're my daughter, but you can't act like my daughter, but you have to call me mom so I can remind you you're not mom. And it just constant, constant reminders that like the, you know, the, the book title Garbage Bag Girl really started sending that message that you're actually not valued. You're not supposed to be here. Nobody does want you and you're not loved, which then transcends into a deeper message of I don't love myself. If I'm not worthy of being loved, I certainly must not love myself. So I started defining who I was by that lack of love for self very early by the time, you know, I was in junior high school. And we reached a point by the time I turned 15, I knew without a question, without a doubt, 
this woman, Kathy, that adopted me would either kill me or I would kill her. And I, I knew, you know, not just from a moral code, but from the way the system functions, I would go into a different kind of system. And I didn't, I didn't want that. I didn't want that path for myself. I didn't know what the path looked like, but I didn't want that. But something also very tragic happened during that time. And that was during the nine years I spent with this adopted family of being constantly rejected from this mother, that core belief that I had that there was a, a higher power was driven at that time by the religion that I was in. And when that religion drove in me over and over again, that even when I die, I have to stay with that family. There was the greatest despair of my life came that I don't talk about in the book. The moment I heard the words, you will live with this family, you know, happily ever after, even when you die. And I remember thinking very clearly that would have never been the God or the higher power, whatever you call, you call that, that, that was not what I assumed that was going to be. And at the age of nine thinking there is no greater consequence, right. Than, than having this life on earth. And then whatever my next life looks like, how big that felt that I really, that's who my God is. That's who my higher power is. That's, that's what I, that's what I have to have. I must have done something really wrong to be that deep into this consequence for something I don't know I did. And it really, really spiraled me out of just feeling like now I had no purpose of taking care of my siblings. I certainly had no value in a family. There was no more self-love. And now there was even no higher power that believed in me and loved me. And I just felt, I mean, it was, it was definitely, there was no purpose of life. So by the time I hit 15 and had that realization that, whoo, something really bad's about to happen, I ran away. And I bounced around for a while. I lived on the bleachers at our school and with family members that would take me or a girlfriend that shuffled me down the road and had me stay with her family for a bit. I really went down that path for a while of shuffling around. And I also about drank myself to death. I, I started picking up that habit and I dropped out of high school. And then about a year later, when I was 16, I came for one of my six month stints, wherever someone would take me and moved in with a woman who now my book is dedicated to. She's truly the woman that gave me life. And she told me something when I moved in with her. Her her line in the family that we all use now is that home is where they have to keep you. And for her, it's a it's a bigger message of we challenge each other in family all the time and we say things we're not supposed to and we do things we don't really mean and we and for her, none of those are deal breakers because home home is where they do have to keep you and you figure that out as a unit. And she definitely had a lot of faith always when I lived with her that things were just better. She was generally very optimistic like I was. She had a very similar upbringing. And so the joke kind of became, I came for Thanksgiving dinner and never left. I was dropped off 
in a Winnebago two weeks before Thanksgiving. And every Thanksgiving just became this beautiful gift of another year that I was in this family. And so on the ninth year anniversary, I toasted the family and I thanked them for letting me be in a family for so long. And I was married at the time, had two children. And my mom jumps out of her seat and literally and just gets super excited and says, well, let's make it official then. And I was like, what, what, what are we making official? And she said, well, let's adopt you. And I was like, it, really, it's okay. You know, like I'm married. I have two children. They call you grandma. I call you mom. The world's a good place. And she shared a story about the loss of a child she had that during a time just wasn't even recognized for mothers. And not even her own biological children knew about that loss. And she felt she was always supposed to have another baby girl. And so if, if you're curious, you cannot change your name on a birth certificate, by the way, by yourself. <laughs> you have to go get an attorney and go through the process of the court system. So we did all that. And at the age of 26, spoiler alert, that, that is the happy ending in the book is that I do end up finding this home that, you know, the book doesn't go into the next 25 years of my life, which is that I did spend a long time still challenging her and questioning whether she really was going to keep me. And part of that is because I was trapped in the mindset of feeling like garbage. And feeling like that person that was just continually putting stuff in the garbage sack, waiting to pack back up, waiting to move, and waiting for the next person to tell me I didn't get to stay. And so I pushed on her for a long, long time. Yeah, so that's kind of where the where my journey went to that point. And it did end in that space. And, and now I do get to be executive director of this really amazing organization that, that we have today. Well, and I want to ask you about that in a few minutes, but I'd like to reflect on that journey because it is really an incredible journey. There's, there's so much in it. And I think the first thing that I'm really taken by is how your, the child, your child had this sense of a higher power. I think that's always so interesting that I, I've, I've met many people that have been in very difficult circumstances. And even if they weren't taught that, there's some sense that there's something else beyond what this is. And I believe that was that power was there with you all along, even though people get like, with, if there was a God, I wouldn't be in this horrible situation. That's, that's the natural conclusion, but that's not really how the divine works. It's like the divine is there. Other people may not be accessing that or expressing it. And ultimately, your journey drew you to the light of this mother who ultimately adopted you. But I think that's really interesting. And also really think it's, it's so clear how confusing it would be if you're in a religious household and the religion is telling you something that, that this God would literally send you to hell when you die. Because I, I, I read your book enough to know that if you <laughs> post-death would end up being with this family for eternity, that would be hell. And like, how, how could that be God? And so, you know, at a young age, you're challenging that. You're saying that can't be right or that's not my God, you know? And so that, that's just really, that's right. really interesting. And it's interesting how people use their religion, well, you know, you know, to, to put on, it's not everybody, but some people use it to put on this facade of being a good person. 
when it, in reality, they're maybe deep down <laughs> a good person, but so many layers of psychological you know, BS is like covering them up in a way that they're kind of psychopathic or psychotic. And that's, that's a situation that you were in. I, I think yeah. that it's so clear that looking at your life that you couldn't help but think, am I worth it? Am I worthy? Am I worthy of love? Because that, that wasn't really mirrored to you, except you, I think, I think that your story, I don't want to give away all of your story, but your last meeting with your dad was just so sweet. And you could tell that even through addiction, there, there was love there. And I do think that there was some anchor of love for you there. And, and what that tells me is we can be that for anybody, you know, like we, we, you're ultimately the woman who took you in. She was your angel in a way. And, and I, I just feel that that's a, such an inspiring story that we don't have to take in a child we can if we're so inspired, but there are so many ways that we can reach out to people and be that wing for people who need to experience love because so many people out there don't understand how worthy they are. And then I think the last thing I want to talk about is your transformation because ultimately yeah. you are a successful person. And I don't mean that, I'm sure you're successful in a material sense, but I don't mean that way. I mean it in a soul sense, like you, your soul is radiating from you and I can see that. And you have done the work to be a, you know, an integrated, loving, successful uh, person. And to me, this is why I love these stories so much, because you provide hope for all sorts of people who are in all sorts of circumstances. They can look at you, Celeste, and go, wow, you know, look what she did. And, and I can too. Thank you. I really yeah. appreciate hearing that. That, through the process of writing the book, that really is the greatest blessing, is finding my path back to my divine nature, to my higher power, and into a greater universe, basically. And to do that, I really do believe I had to write the book. I did have a quick relief happen when I started working for, for Richard Paul Evans 30 years ago. He was at the time, not today, but in, in the religion that I was in when that happened. And so I asked him right away. I said, my biggest fear is that I've been told that this is going to happen when I die. And you know, and he said, you've, you've been carrying the weight of that for a really long time. And I said, well, I, I just can't imagine. I, you know, it's not even like I can, I can die and have relief. Like what is, what does that even look like? And he calmly said, and was the first person to say, and he held a very high position in that church at the time. And he said, I will tell you right now, there are many things I don't know, but this is what I do know is there is no God when you leave this earth that would force you to be in that hell again. And I trusted him and I believed him. And it was the very first time that I had a huge deep breath, sense of relief that, okay, I can, I can ground with that. I, I, I can take peace with that. And so it was the first time that I, you know, I had hope again. And that was about 21 at the time. So that was a lot of years from nine to 21 to not have that hope. 
And it, during that time, in retrospect, I realized how angry I got at the concept of God and what happens, right, when you not only you you stop believing, but then you turn away. And I think you start to make very, very tough decisions with that perspective in mind that lead you down even darker paths. But you don't know it at the time. You know, you're just you're just in the blame game. And I think we all want somebody to blame. And I think that source becomes all you have left to blame. Somebody just must not want me to be happy, which we know is not true. So that was the first helpful part of the path. But then when I started writing my book, which was single-handedly the most difficult thing I've ever done, and I have birthed three children, and I did live through the situations of the book, but it, it was so interesting because in getting a trauma therapist, one thing I have learned through writing the book is that when you're in a situation and you're surviving it and you're pushing through and you're doing the very best you can, especially as a child dealing with trauma, what you're not doing is you're not going through the right processes that allow you to eventually heal from that. And so you're pushing through, you're pushing through. So writing the book took me through those processes, whether I liked it or not. I was angry at people for the first time. I was very hurt and very sad for the first time. I had physical reactions over the abuse for the first time. Traumatically, I had a lot that I had to process through that time. And most importantly, I grieved. I grieved for the first time. I grieved over the loss of my siblings. I grieved over the loss of my father. And I grieved, more importantly, for the childhood I lost. And so that process was remarkably hard. But then a, a beautiful miracle happened. And that is I came out on the other side of, of being done writing the book. And I had this huge empowerment happen that I could congratulate myself for. I got to say to that seven-year-old girl, you did a really good job at age seven doing the very best you could. You protected the people you loved the very best you could. And you get to be done with that. You get to be done with that part of your life and free myself from still feeling like I, I maybe just didn't do enough for them and I, and I didn't make the right decisions at seven. I mean, who would even think you should? But I did, and I carried, I carried that weight for a long time. And so part of finding my way back you know, to, 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 to my higher power is I had to learn that institutions and people in those settings wronged me. But my divine nature and my higher power and the universe certainly did not wrong me. And in kind of gaining a greater understanding of that and, and reading some books about it and just going back to learning to meditating and, and praying, I found my way back to, you know, what I had lost, which is my direct connection and my source. And I remember thinking, if not one thing, I told Richard Pollins, if not one thing comes out of this book that is greater than that, it's going to be okay. Because what it's done for me in transforming myself is it has enlightened the people in my life by seeing a great change in me. I get asked so much now that, I've, that the book has been written 
um, why, why I look better. And you, you seem to feel so much happier and you're so much lighter. And I mean, I just get so many comments from people that know me that I, I left a 15 year, very toxic relationship that I was very scared of leaving. And I would have never made those big decisions had I not gone on this journey of finding my way back to that path and ultimately finding gratitude in a life that one would argue I didn't have to be grateful for, but I am. I have so much gratitude for all those experiences. I have so much gratitude for anything that that even was wrong for me in my life because today I have the greatest blessings of my whole life to get to do the work that I want to do to get to meet people and help touch them and empower them in a way that I could never do before. And I wouldn't change any of what happened if that altered who I get to be today, which I, I feel like is the, is the best version of myself. But I had to come back. I had to come back to, to the divine. I had to come back to my higher power. And I had to find gratitude in my heart for everything that was wronged for me. So. It's been a great journey. <laughs> That's an incredibly powerful testimony and a powerful story. And I, I think it's so interesting because writing down your story, I think what you're saying is it required you to go back. It required you to go back into those experiences. Yes. And, and that's the integration process, mm -hmm. to go, go back into and feel those feelings again, because a lot of them have been put in the basement. You face them head off. You're able to, to speak to your seven-year-old and love her because she was amazing, is amazing. So that's an interesting for people to know that the act of writing down or telling your story is transformative in itself because it helps that integration process. And I just think it's such a, it's a miracle. This is the miracle of life that, that you can look, you can look at your whole life and say, I don't want to change it because of who you are now. And I think that is such a blessing. It's such a blessing. And I think that if we look back on our lives and we go, oh, I wish I would do that. I wish I would do that. Or that was wrong. That was wrong. I think it's a little red flag that's saying, wait a minute, you know, maybe, maybe you're not happy with yourself now. And maybe there's some work to do. Maybe, maybe we need to go back and do some healing and inner child work to come to this place where no matter what, I can't say I don't want that past because I love who I am now. And for you to make those powerful moves like leaving a relationship or, you know, these are hard things for people. And, and this is a wonderful story of transformation. You've done the hard work. You went through a hard time and then you've done the hard work. And here you are, the, this light of the world. So, you know, that's just so wonderful. Do you, want to, do you want to move a little bit and talk about the work you're doing now? Because obviously, I think you wouldn't be doing the work you're doing now with the Christmas box without having your past. So do you want to, to tell us what that is and, and, right. and how you're helping people? Yes, thank you. I, I would love to do that. So 30 years ago when I met Richard Paul Evans, he had just written a little green book called The Christmas Box. And that book is based on the loss of a child through death. And it went on to bless, gosh, still hundreds of thousands of lives. And it also became one at the time, one of the only two books to ever hit the New York Times bestseller list as a self-published book. I think next to the Celestine Prophecy at the time. 
Mm-hmm. And when he and his wife made a bunch of money from that experience, he they wanted to give back, but they weren't quite sure how. And so I was his assistant at the time. He knew a, quite a bit about my life and my past. And we decided to have a child welfare conference at our in our state. And we invited all the child advocates we, we could get get our hands on. And we had a great opportunity. Well, first of all, Utah was one of many states at that time that was being sued by the National Center for Youth Law for the mistreatment of children. There were several states being sued for children dying in care. And we had a very unique opportunity at that time to say to these child advocates, here's the situation we're in as a state. Here's this family that's willing to step up and put a lot of money into it. So let's just ask what the single best thing is we can do for abused and neglected children. And we learned a lot of things that day, but one of the most important was that we, you know, we really realized as a state that we were basically removing and placing children in the first place we could find for them, but it wasn't necessarily the best place. And the reason for that is because there was no place for them to go in order to buy some time, for lack of a better phrase, to even be able to make those decisions. So the Christmas Box House was formed off of the name of the book, and we have three of them in our state, three emergency shelters that take children ages 0 to 18 when they have first been removed because of abuse, neglect, trafficking, or homelessness. And it does buy that time for the state to make a better assessment and figure out, gosh, do these kids go home under a safety plan? Well, 50% of them, half of them do get to do that in that by doing that. The other half, is there a family member that, you know, can step up and, and take these children or do they need to go into foster care and what does that need to look like? So it allows that to happen, but it isn't the fact that shelter care is unique. A lot of states have shelter care we have other shelters in our state that are not Christmas box houses. What what makes our program uniquely different are a couple of things. One, we try to bring every service to the child under one roof to eliminate multiple transitions. So from dental to mental health checks to well child care checks to med management, we call that. All those things, education under one roof. The other thing that we do that is by far most meaningful to me is keeping siblings together. Losing my siblings is still the hardest part in my heart to work through. It's a it's a loss that doesn't get filled back up that happens so young that I constantly think about and work on. And we keep, because of keeping children through the age of 18 and, and aren't licensed restricted to the age of 12, we keep about a thousand siblings together a year just in our three shelter programs. And when you've lost everything that you have, all of your belongings, all of your uncles and aunts, your grandparents, your cousins, you know, anything that ever mattered to you, especially as an older child, your siblings are all you have left that bond you to any biological connection that ever maybe made any sense to you when you've lost everything. And so to be able to give them at least that, it is the least we can do for sure, but it also is, from an outcome perspective, one of the best things that we can do for them. And what we hope is that time does buy some time to find a family that can maybe take them all. Because when you live in states like ours that have large families, 
if we have families that have three, four, five kids and we remove a family of three, four, five kids, you're now asking a family to take six, seven, eight, ten kids. I mean, most people can't do that. And so you you do have to have that time and, and that place for those siblings to be while those shifts can be made. So that is that is what we do. We also offer 20, because not all kids have to stay in a shelter, but they all do need their essential items. So we do also have 22 resource rooms in our state that caseworkers can access all the essential items that they need for those kiddos when, when they're in that situation. So it's a great program. It's been 28 years this year. We've served over 155,000 children. We average about 14,000 a year, and that's enough to fill Madison Square Garden more than seven times. So wow. that's a lot of kids, uh, which is very bittersweet, right? We always say, gosh, if this was the one job we just didn't have to have anymore, that would be okay. But every year, there's more kids. They're more difficult to place because of uh, bigger behavioral issues. And it's just not, unfortunately, going to be anything that gets resolved anytime soon. So we're really grateful that we have the opportunity and super, super grateful that we figured out a way to to help our most vulnerable children, for sure. Now, in your capacity as director, do you also get down in, in the field with these kids? Or are you kind of up there planning? Do you, do you find yourself being able to be face-to-face with these kids? I do. It's pretty difficult for me from a triggering standpoint. It's it's awesome, and I do it as much as I can. But it also, especially if they're the age of the seven to nine that I was in, I I definitely have a very quick response, both physically and emotionally, that takes me to that time. Now I've I've learned a lot of grounding skills, and I and I'm definitely equipped to manage it. But it does do that enough that I don't I don't do it on a day-to-day basis. I do a weekly check-in and I, I do like the constant reminder of having the kids around me to remind me who they are and that they're there. But mostly I run the the nonprofit side and not the side that that you know takes care of the kiddos. I work with the nonprofit side and I work with the community to procure the the items for the kids that the state can't get on their own. Yeah. And it sounds to me like you you worked as a, an assistant to Richard, but how did that come about? Because that almost sounds like it was divinely guided. Yes, for sure it was. I I was pregnant with my first child, my son, and I knew that within the coming weeks, I would be laid off. I had been told that was going to happen. And it was just one of those situations where I'm literally handing my resume out at 20, age 21 to anyone who would take it at the time. Like, hey, if you hear something, you know, I'm 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 getting ready to have a baby and I really, I really need um a job, really. And within a few days of handing my resume out to someone that already worked for Richard Evans, he came over to the office. We were in the same building in downtown Salt Lake City. And he just came over kind of waving it one day and said, Just come talk to me when you have a break. And so I walked over to his office that afternoon and met him in person and he he pulled up the little green book and he asked if I'd heard of it. And I said, no, I have not. And he said, well, I'm really impressed with what's on your resume. I'm about to become a full-time author and close my advertising company. This book has done really well. And the skill set you have, especially around travel, I really can use. 
will you take this book home and read it tonight and come talk to me again tomorrow? So I went home and my husband at the time, I remember saying that was the most bizarre job interview of my life. But I was supposed to read this book, but he said it's only around 14,000 words and I should be able to do it in an hour and a half. So I read it. I go back the next day and I tell him I read it. And he initially doesn't really seem to believe me. And he's asking me a bunch of questions. But I obviously passed. And he said, you know, I'm, I would love to have you. And I say, well, just so you know, I'm going to have a baby in five months. <laughs> I'm full disclosure. And he said, well, I didn't really need to know that, but thank you for sharing. And we're all good. So it just started this this beautiful friendship that is, is 30 years strong. And, you know, his wife and I were pregnant when I had my second child at the same time. And it's been really awesome to see the journey that they've been on. He has written 46 New York Times bestselling novels. So he was a great partner for the book, for sure. It was one thing to get it all out, but then it was another to kind of try to storyline something that was really clunky in my head. And he's very good at that. So I couldn't have asked for a better partner that way. He also, from a trust standpoint, it was really important to me to be writing my most scary moments with somebody that would hold it close to their heart. And, you know, he's also a very spiritual person. And we prayed a lot about the book and a lot about the message and what we hoped it would do for the children, not only that we serve, but the children in the world and help, you know, gain some insight into what they go through. So we decided that I would be very vulnerable. I would expose a lot of my past I'd never talked about and really allow people to have a conversation about what can go on with kids when, when they go into state custody and how can we help as a community, you know, to better fill those gaps. It's a really important conversation. And as you're talking, I'm hoping that this conversation right here may be the beginning of you becoming inspired to do like a TED Talk because you should be on a stage telling your story. I can see it. I can see you doing it. And I think it would really bless a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> think about that. <laughs> Thank you. Think about that. Just I'll, I'll, I'll put it on the list. Put it on the list. <laughs> you know, because you're already doing it, but you would just you know, be up there and doing yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. You're already doing it. So I, I've just got a couple more questions before we close. Are you together with your siblings now? Did you guys reunite? I am not with my brother. Uh, we did get reunited about a year or so after our adoptions were final. And we did kind of say pen pals. They stayed in one home through all of their childhood. And I kept moving every six months, even after being adopted. We moved a lot. And so, yeah, we kind of became pen pals. And, but my sister and I stayed very, very close. My brother and I, it's a tough situation. He, he really struggles with addiction. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard for me to be around that behavior, given our circumstances. So it's very sad. I, I love him a lot. And he's absolutely hilarious and such a great human. But he just, his demons are are very big and he really struggles, you know, not in, in the addiction world. So I don't have a relationship with him. I am very close to my sister. She also struggles, but she's a very accountable person. And so, yeah, we live in different states, but we're very close. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it, and, and, and that's really healing because, you know, I had to really go through the process of, I remember 
when she was in high school and I had graduated, still calling and checking on her and making sure she was taking her meds or doing what she was supposed to do. And she would always get mad at me and say, you're not my mom, you're my sister. And I didn't even know what that meant or how it felt like or how I was supposed to behave with that. And then I remember having my son be born. I was holding him in the hospital. And I, I can remember the, even the direction I was facing and how I was holding him. And I had a very, very quick feeling come over me of a very big aha moment that, oh, it was like a transference. Now I'm a parent. Mm. This is what I'm supposed to take care of. This is what my role is. This is what the maternal feelings I feel are designed for. Okay, now I can learn how to be a sister. And I remember calling my sister Tani and saying, I think I got it. <laughs> I think now that I'm a mom, I can learn to start to be a better sister. And I, I'm certainly sorry for that. I didn't know better, but I think I can learn how to be friends that way. And so our journey has really together been about that in the last 28 years of how to have a sisterhood versus me parenting her, which is, you know, very different. So that's, that's its own journey, right? That's its own book. That's like it, its own, its own book message. Book two or three. <laughs> Yeah, maybe so. (laughs) Yeah, I think it might be. The last thing I want to ask you is, can you can you just share with the listeners why your book is called Garbage Bag Girl? Because I don't think we talked about that in the beginning. Yeah. So Garbage Bag Girl came about just in a conversation I was having one night shortly after writing the book, because titles tend to come organically as you write them, as you write the story. And we had a couple we were tossing around, but. I remember having a conversation with Richard and then just saying, it's just like I feel like a garbage bag girl. And we both looked at each other like, okay, I think I think that title might stick. And it was because we were talking about, you know, moving every six months and my stuff going in a garbage bag. But more importantly, what's really happened with it is it's, it covers more of how I feel about viewing myself as garbage and being that garbage bag girl and working through from being ashamed of her and sad to a life of empowerment and owning my voice, which allows me to take my power back that I feel was lost. And learning about who I was and why I made many, many of the of the choices that took me down wrong paths to greater deeper, harder darkness was very much the way I valued myself and the lack of love for myself and the commitment to myself that allows me to have a better, a better life, including boundaries that are healthy because I was robbed of all that. And I didn't, I didn't know how to, how to have that back, get that back. And so garbage bag girl is, is much more than about the garbage sack, right? It's about, it's about the mindset more than anything of feeling like trash. And mm. at the Christmas Box International, we our motto is that every child deserves a childhood. But for me, there's even an extension of that, that every child deserves a childhood, but no child deserves to feel like garbage. And that just really takes on such a, such a deeper message with the title. Yeah, yeah. The, the garbage bag you carried from place to place, I mean, literally, that was your suitcase. But it had a lot deeper meaning than yeah. that, or, or double yeah. meetings. 
I, I want to say that there, there's a chapter in your book where you talk about kind of getting involved with the wrong girls, you know, the mean girls. And there's a little bit of bullying that you ended up finding yourself in. And I just would acknowledge that the way you told that story uh, was so helpful to the reader to get into the mind of, quote, the bully, because it's so hard to understand the bully. You know, you just kind of want to slap them yeah. and say, you know, you're, you're bad, you're wrong. Yeah. But you were able to convey what is in yeah. the heart and the soul and the mind when that person is acting out in a bullying way. And, and it allows the reader to have this sympathy and open your heart and be able to kind of reach in and, and go, I understand you, you know, I understand you. But I, I, our sympathies always go to, quote, the victim, but our sympathies can also go to the perpetrator. And I think you did a really good job sharing that because I think that's very difficult to convey. Yeah, that was the chapter about saying goodbye to my father initially was the hardest chapter I wrote. But then when I decided to write the bullying chapter from the perspective of, yes, like you said, me being the bully, that became a much more painful chapter because it was about not something happening to me at that time, but really about my choices I was making to hurt other people, including a, a, a girl that very much befriended me that didn't deserve it and an adopted father that I never got to make amends with because he passed away. And I realized that it was important though, because for me, if, if, if I'm going to be that vulnerable to share my story, I feel like from an authentic standpoint, I had to be very real with people on also that part of me. You know, I didn't just get victimized my whole life, but I really did turn into that person for a short time that I think just from the yin and yang perspective, I think people have sides and then they can dominate over the other yeah. if, you know, if we get in a certain mindset. And many people will, would excuse it. They would understand it. They, they don't, they wouldn't blame me for it, but that's not really, that wasn't the point. The point was owning it for myself and recognizing that that it was still wrong what I did. And of all the people in the book, if that person, if that Jennifer, and there's many Jennifers in the book, but if that Jennifer in particular ever crossed my path, I would very much love um, that opportunity today because in my mind, she's this beautiful woman living this beautiful life, but I don't, I don't know if that's true. And I would like to believe that, you know, what happened during that time certainly hasn't kept her on a, on a difficult path because she's a beautiful person. And she was a friend to me when many people were not just like my father, adopted father in that situation. And it's really about grasping at that point in your life when you've been wronged for so, it's not about condoning behavior because I would definitely never do that. But I do think it's about understanding behavior. I think when we understand the why people make decisions, they, one, you gain a deeper understanding of yourself and, and why you make the decisions you make. And I think it creates a better alignment with, with how we are with each other 
you know, it, it makes us all more relatable. And I think that's important to do that. You don't have to condone a, a behavior to understand and have empathy. Those are, they're not the same thing. Just like when people say, I'm not going to forgive that person. Well, you're not forgiving them because you're questioning whether they deserve that or not. And you can take that off your list. You don't have to be the one to make that judgment. By the way, we have someone that gives to do that. That is not you. It's for you. You know, forgive, forgiveness and gratitude and empathy are much more about who you are and who you want to be and the strength that you want within yourself than it ever is for the other person. Most people don't want you to feel sorry for them, right? But if you're empathetic for them, you're really understanding your own self and your own empathy and that power of forgiveness. And all that is just, you know, its own topic. And it's so big and so wonderful. And I, I think we just get caught up in the whether people deserve something or not. Mm. And that's just not the conversation that's the healing way, you know? Yeah, I think you said that very, very well. Thank you for all of that. And we're coming up at the end. I want to make sure that you said everything you want to say. Yes, absolutely. I would love people to, if they want to learn more about me or my organization, to visit CelesteEdmonds.com. There's a lot of information on there, including how to get the book. I do get asked all the time if it's on Audible, and it is. It is read by me. That was a rough two days, but it is there and it is available. And if you, there's lots of ways to reach out to me. And if you would love to connect, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, thank you, Celeste. And I just think that your story really does open our hearts and help us. Anytime we open our hearts and understand another person's story and understand who another person is, where they've been, and who they are now, I think it just really elevates consciousness and it serves the consciousness of the whole world. So thank you for being so bold in authentically sharing yourself today and also in your book. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, listeners. And I now close the spiritual forum. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, you can let me know by leaving a positive rating and review on your favorite podcast app or make a tax-deductible donation at thespiritualforum.org. The Spiritual Forum is a podcast, prayer, and retreat ministry affiliated with Unity Worldwide Ministries. Thank you again for being a part of the Spiritual Forum community. And remember, you are an amazing, divine, and powerful being.